Thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, I know there are a lot of competing events at any given time um, here in Washington, so we are always very grateful to see a, a full house with us today. I'm Shihoko Goto with the Wilson Center's Asia program. Um, I'm excited to be able to introduce this program together with my colleagues from the Kissinger Institute. Um, but before we begin, I hope I may, um, you may indulge me and have a moment of silence as we remember those who perished in the Black Hawk helicopter crash at the beginning of this year, um, and uh, which was a very sobering moment um, to, to begin this new um, decade. So. Thank you. Um, now, as we turn to the weekend events, um, it was perhaps difficult to predict a landslide victory for Tsai Ing-wen a year ago. But obviously, a lot has happened over the last 12 months. Uh, 2019 was a particularly pivotal year for Taiwan, and not least um, as it um, responded um, to the anti-Beijing protests in Hong Kong which really drove the momentum for voters to turn out and express their support to maintain sovereignty in Taiwan. Um, of course, 2019 was a pivotal year for US-China relations, and we know that the ongoing friction between the two countries goes far beyond anything that is simply defined by trade relations or indeed um, tariff disputes. Um, the latest res election results um, it, this is an opportunity to go through the latest election results and see how they have strengthened the DPP's mandate. Um, how can the ruling uh, party deliver um, in meeting the voters' demands and meeting some of the challenges that Taiwan will continue to face, both within its own borders and outside of its borders as well? Um, and how will the ruling government move forward in having a working relationship with Beijing? And of course, how will the results impact Washington's relations with Taiwan and its position regarding cross-strait relations? So there's a lot to cover over the next 60 minutes, and I'm very happy to be able to introduce speakers who will be able to really give us an in-depth analysis on what, not only on what happened, but what we can expect moving forward. Um, you have their complete bios in front of you in the handout that we have outside, but um, we will begin today with comments from Nadia Tsao, who is the director of the Mandarin Service of Radio Free Asia. Um, following her will be Robert Daly, the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute. And wrapping up will be um, Abe Denmark, the director of the Wilson Center's Asia program. So with that, uh, Nadia. Okay, uh, thank you everybody for having me. Um, I saw many old friends and many experts in, in this room, so I'm very honored um, to be invited. Uh, before I joined RFA, I've been a uh, Washington correspondent for Liberty Time and Taipei Time for 20 years. So over you know three decades of experience covering for Taiwan's news media, of course I follow Taiwan's election and the politics very closely. And since I am the first one to speak, I will just use a very simple PowerPoint to, to tell you what <laughs> happened. You know, uh, maybe give you uh, a picture or idea about the, this election and the dynamics uh, now in Taiwan. Uh, I would say the the title is the victory without surprise. Uh, even one year ago, it was hard to imagine, but all the polls conducted <coughs> you know, before the election consistently show that DPP uh, is going to win. The Tsai Ing-wen, I would say Tsai Ing-wen is going to win. And uh, some of the polls showed a bigger margin uh, of the victory. Um, but I think uh, before the election, uh, the analysis and uh, what we saw in Taiwan is that uh, what worry people is that uh, if this uh, election result is too close to call for the diehard supporter of a KMT's candidate, Han Guoyu, will they be able to accept a defeat? Um, so that's something the, you know, the observer watch closely, but 
unless you know something very dramatic happened, I think people uh, were expecting Taiwan to win this election. And the second, how can I? This is uh, about the uh, the voters uh, for this election, and according to uh, the government statistics, about uh, 1.18 million first-time voter. So in the first, you know, uh, segment, you see about uh, three million people, but uh, one million are first-time voter. Um, so you can see. Most of the voters are between, I think, between 40 and 49. So they, these people are basically established um, voters in the society. And even though there are some, you know, uh, there are some basic supporter for the green and the blue camp, but there are still a very significant uh, number of the voters ident identify themselves as independent. So they vote for the candidate they, they like, not that necessarily for the party. And I think the young, the first time voter this time, uh, uh, I haven't seen the uh, statistic yet released by the government, but many people, uh, uh, analysis in Taiwan indicate that the first time voters uh, are very uh, significant for uh, Taiwan's victory. Many of them went home this time. I think one, uh, one issue for the younger voter is that even though they tell you uh, in the pool they support someone, it doesn't guarantee they will go home to vote. <laughs> so, so this time I think both camps really try hard, you know, um, use this sense of a crisis, you know, to drive out their vote. And they, they saw those people who visit Taiwan, you know, in the past two days, I saw a lot of interviewer stories that they saw just young people pack on the high-speed rail train or the train, just getting, getting back home to vote. Okay, and this is voting rate uh, since 2000. Um, it's it was, it's <coughs> not the highest, but still uh, higher than the previous two votes. Well, so which means that uh, even though Taiwan is an incumbent uh, uh, candidate, uh, some uh, dynamic in Taiwan is you know driving uh, the voters out to express their concern. Uh, it's not for someone new, you know, they are passionate uh, about, but there's a different uh, issue that people feel strongly they have to express their opinion. And even though it's not the highest, but Taiwan's uh, got more than eight million votes, uh, which is a record high uh, during all these uh, seven, you know, elections since uh, 1996. And this is uh, sorry, this is in ch uh, Chinese, but I just explained for the first one is the the vote presidential vote for PFP for James Songs. And the second is for uh, KMT, Han uh, Guoyu, and Tai Ing-wen, uh, DPP, <coughs> the third one. So you can see uh, the winning margin is pretty high, more than two million votes. Um, so Tai Ing-wen took about 57%, uh, Han Guoyu 38%, uh, and James saw about 4% of the vote. <coughs> but when you see uh, what Han Guoyu did during this election, you know, it's obviously <coughs> in 2018, he won significantly in Kaohsiung, the city, you know, he made it, this, you know, Han Guoyu syndrome uh, in Taiwan. Um, but this time, uh, Tai Ing-wen did much better. Uh, Han Guoyu lost you know, his support, very significant. So I think uh, we already see from Taiwan's uh, uh, re report, news report that many Kaohsiung citizens feel very, uh, uh, feel upset that Han Guoyu didn't fulfill his promise to be the mayor. 
and after he got elected, he just decided to uh, run for the president's presidential office uh, without really deliver what he promised during the campaign. So voters, some voters in Kaohsiung uh, feel like they, so one thing we need to monitor next is that, well, you know, people ask him to uh, step out of the office. Uh, even after his victory, that might be not uh, the worst things happen to him. Um, he might have to defend his uh, position or seat in Kaohsiung. Um, another thing I want to point out, even Tsai Ing-wen uh, had a landslide victory, but the, when you look at the party vote, I don't know if you are familiar with Taiwan's uh, election system. This time, uh, all the uh, voters can vote for the president, the legislator, and then they have a party vote. So if you decided to vote for one party, the people nominated by the party can get more seats in the LY. So when you look at the, the party vote, actually DPP didn't really, uh, you know, <coughs> made a big progress. The party vote between KMT and the DPP are very close. Mm. So people decided to vote for Tsai Ing-wen because they believe that maybe she's more able to defend the sovereignty and <coughs> defend <coughs> democracy than the uh, KMT voter. But I think this, this uh, show you that people doesn't really want to give a blank check to DPP. And KMT still have a very solid base on the grassroots level. And this is a very bad PowerPoint <laughs> because I don't <laughs> think you can really see it clearly. <laughs> but I just want to demonstrate that, you know, there are 19 parties running this time. <laughs> so because party vote is very uh, unique design in Taiwan, so small, it gives a small party a chance to nominate uh, their uh, candidates. And this is time uh, Taiwan People's Party became the <coughs> the number three party, which was led by Ke Wenzhe, the Taipei mayor. So a new, s new party actually emerged uh, during this election. And you, when you see the uh, LY election results, uh, DPP definitely uh, became, uh, still remain uh, the majority party in LY. But they also, you know, you can see there's a, the big game actually uh, for, the smaller, uh, for the smaller party. And there's not a very significant change about the proportion uh, of the seats for KMT and the DPP. Even DPP lost some seats. Um, and this is the, the LY votes for KMT and the DPP uh, since, <coughs> since 2001. So for me, I think uh, how we should interpret uh, the election result uh, based on the, uh, all the story analysis, you know, a, talking, a talk shows in Taiwan, I think people indicated that this time is a referendum of Xi Jinping's Taiwan policy. I think <laughs> uh, we have a lot of, uh, Taiwan has a lot of domestic issue, um, but since last year, uh, I think Xi Jinping uh, in January delivered some remarks about the one country, two system. And later on, he made it very clear that uh, there's only one China, no two interpretation. So for Taiwan, you know, this is a sense of urgency. And some people even label that this is like a, a crisis for both parties, feel like the country they love will disappear. For the KMT, it's like uh, ROC, Republic of China, will be succeeded by the Republic of Taiwan. So many people decided to come out to vote and want to maintain the ROC uh, as they know. And for the DPP supporter, what happened in China, and also especially in Hong Kong, the, the second factors, 
I think it definitely Hong Kong has a strong impact. Uh, this has almost become a cliched in Taiwan's talk show when you look at that people say, yes, uh, Hong Kong does have a significant impact, especially for the young, uh, young generation <coughs> who, are, who has never experienced the so-called 228 tragedy or uh, the Tiananmen uh, incident. It's, you know, uh, it's already after, you know, it happened so long time ago and it seems very distant uh, to from their experience. But what they saw uh, in Hong Kong have a, a really a new impact and the memory, uh, which they take, you know, democracy and the freedom for granted. But now they see that they, they, that can change. And I third time, uh, the third uh, conclusion I would make is that the urge to defend the sovereignty of value overpowered the need for butter and bread. I think uh, last election we saw a big win, victory uh, for KMT. And at the time when Han Guoyu won the Kaohsiung election, I think his slogan is that make everybody uh, rich, okay? <laughs> So at the time, what really uh, concerned people is about economic growth and the opportunity to do business, to do more business, or uh, opportunity for young people to find jobs. But one year later, we saw the, the Hong Kong uh, uh, pro protests change the debate. And also we see uh, the trend, uh, the negative trend uh, in China Xi Jinping and C uh, CCP became more authoritarian, uh, authoritarian. and also uh, the room for the negotiation between Taiwan and uh, China is actually shrinking. So this time you, s you don't see uh, people talk <coughs> about uh, economic growth that much, e even though uh, the KMT candidate emphasized that uh, very often. But I think the uh, issue that dominates the presidential debate this time is who can defend Taiwan's sovereignty and who can defend democracy. And I think another issue is that um, KMT seems to lost their uh, capability uh, to explain their China policy uh, to the uh, not only to voters in Taiwan, but to the international community. When you read all the international newspaper, you always see them label KMT as a pro-China party. And for this election, this is not an asset for KMT. Uh, they have to uh, again repeatedly uh, explain that Han Guoyu is not a pro-China candidate. KMT is not a pro-China party, but what they are. They cannot really uh, explain that very well to the audience. You know, they said that they are a defender of uh, our sea's sovereignty, but how and how they define their relationship with uh, China? It always comes with a very complex series, uh, a lot of uh, explanation that is hard for the voter to understand. So I think for after this, uh, after this. Um, defeat uh, for KMT, this is one thing I, I believe the party itself have to think hard. Um, how to sell or how to tell a story that the voter can easily understand. And but is KMT game over? I don't think so. For, uh, for what we just saw uh, the, the party vote KMT uh, game uh, from this election. Uh, this is what this is also uh, related to another uh, conclusion, uh, the point I made. I think after all this ele election in the past three decades, um, voters in Taiwan <coughs> believe that uh, either party can fail them. So they prefer to maintain a multi-party system. Not only uh, to support the two-party system, but they want to give some room to the small party. So uh, for DPP, you know, uh, if they study the party vote they gain, I don't think they should be overly uh, optimistic about the future election. They actually has to be very cautious because now they are the dominant party in the presidential office and AOY. They have to take all the blame, you know, in the future if something goes wrong. 
Um, so I think it, another thing is uh, very, um, uh, very uh, different from previous election. We saw this time a younger generation of uh, uh, opinion leader emerge. Uh, there's on the internet, there are quite a few hosts, a very popular. Over uh, each program have like a one million followers, a viewer. Uh, these vote, these uh, hosts are the young, and they talk frequently about the China's uh, penetration in Taiwan. And before the election, they encourage young generation, you know, young voter to vote, and they even tell them how to identify uh, and vote uh, correctly. Uh, you don't see that, uh, I think, in maybe just even two years ago. So um, in Taiwan, you know, we in, uh, people believe in democracy and the freedom of speech. Uh, in the past, if you talk about the Chinese infiltration, people would just say, oh, you try to uh, restrain my uh, freedom of speech. <coughs> but now I think uh, some people believe uh, started to take this very seriously, and all these programs, you know, uh, I, I believe definitely have an impact on the young generation how they see China as a com uh, as a competitors, uh, not only just uh, a place a market, you know, they can find jobs or make money. Um, these these. Uh, I think this has uh, make a, some people said you know change the DNA of Taiwan's democracy. I don't. I'm not so sure at this moment, but definitely for this <coughs> e election, it made some difference. Uh, I will just stop here. Another two experts to talk about China and the U.S. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much, Nadia. Um, just one point I, I wanted to make. Um, it's interesting how the voter focus has moved away from economic issues to the issue of sovereignty this time around. I did want to point out, though, that Taiwan has benefited as well from the U.S.-China trade friction and that the, um, there has been a great deal of momentum towards the re-capital um, uh, re um, flow back into China from Taiwan, and but that will actually be difficult to maintain as there will be competition with Southeast Asia as well. Um, so that is one point I wanted to make. Um, Robert, China's response. <laughs> Thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, well, as I was watching the results come in over the weekend and thinking about uh, this discussion this morning, I was struck that these elections are, have been a very closely watched pot, <coughs> sort of much analyzed. They went more or less according to expectations, and I would say that broadly the, the, the media analysis of it after the election has been on the mark for the most part. So our, our great challenge this morning is, is to be interesting and to, to add something to this. Uh, very broadly, uh, before I get down to China's, uh, China's response, uh, three conclusions that I draw from all of this, other than the sort of more <coughs> narrow Taiwanese politics uh, sorts of conclusions. One that you touched on is that one country, two systems, has failed in both Hong Kong and Taiwan. Remember that this was supposed to be China's big idea for winning acceptance of its governance in these areas. And now, as an engine for building political consensus, which was how China's leaders hoped that this would operate as, as a long-term sort of open framework that could be developed jointly to build political consensus in favor of Chinese governance. As an engine for that kind of consensus, it seems pretty clear that it is dead and discredited outside of Beijing. Uh, of course, one country, two systems can still be imposed by force, uh, which is what has always loomed uh, behind both the situation in Hong Kong and in Taiwan. In fact, it now seems that because one country, two systems can only be imposed by force. Continue, Beijing's continued insistence on the formula increasingly sounds like a threat of force rather than an offer of comity, of harmony. And if you recall that when this first became a phrase that was in 
broadly used internationally, one country, two systems, sounded more open-handed. It sounded like a description of China's willingness to accept within its broad purview uh, democracy, uh, rule of law, example in, in Hong Kong, other places. It seemed to be more about open-handedness and now increasingly I think it sounds ominous and I think that we will see here in Washington, China's continued insistence on one country, two systems probably becomes now a, a feeder for this broad, bad China narrative, which, which has so much uh, credence in Washington. That's number one. Number two, and I've been struck by this uh, throughout the past year uh, and in the aftermath of the Taiwanese elections, um, it is Beijing has no new ideas replace one country, two systems. And this, is, this, is, this failure of ideas, I think, is, is quite striking, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, and then the last broad conclusion, uh, again, which you've touched on, is that the KMT is also out of ideas. Not only did it fail uh, to win votes in this election, the KMT really failed to explain what it is for in 2020. <laughs> why, why do we have a KMT? China, uh, going ahead, I think, has three broad options, which, again, have been, I think, correctly analyzed, uh, more or less, in the press. One, uh, it can choose to absorb Taiwan through force, uh, as, I think, a, a minority, but a growing number of people in Washington seem to expect a, a, a military move on Taiwan. Two, uh, China could, in light of this failure of one country, two systems, it could change tactics. Its strategic goal of absorbing Taiwan will certainly not change, but it does have an option of launching a new phase of smile diplomacy that emphasizes commercial and cultural ties. It has done this successfully in the past. Uh, it could allow within China, uh, within Chinese think tanks and policy circles, discussions of new concepts, like for example, loose forms of confederation. This doesn't, this kind of discussion or smile diplomacy it uh, doesn't seem to be in the offing. There's no sign of it, uh, but it is an option. And then third, uh, China can choose to wait out the second Tsai administration in hopes that a more pliable leader will follow her. This, of course, uh, is the most likely course of events, I think, a continued uh, muddle of the sort that we have seen. China will continue to restrict uh, Taiwan's international scope of action and may even uh, increase, you know, pressure on the, the thumbscrews on Taiwan. It may ramp up intimidation of Taiwan through military exercises, influence campaigns, and cyber intrusions. But most likely, we will be looking at uh, more of the same for the next four years. And I'll, I'll come back to the, my reason for thinking that in a minute. Um, but this, this failure of ideas on China's part, again, is, is striking, especially because the Chinese Communist Party is fully aware uh, of the growth in a belief in a Taiwanese identity on Taiwan. They read and follow and understand these polls. Uh, the Chinese government understands full well that most people in Taiwan do not long for an immediate return to the embrace of the motherland as part of the People's Republic of China. Uh, they know this. Interest in joining the PRC project is scarce in Taiwan. China has many fine analysts who are capable of generating new concepts based on this understanding of what's really going on in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, it doesn't happen, of course, because of the nature of Xi Jinping's governance, which you've already mentioned. And while that is an obvious point, I think it, it bears repeating. Uh, it is striking that with regards to its top strategic priority, bringing Taiwan uh, into what they call unification with the PRC, China is not an ideas factory. And this is all the more striking because China is dynamic in so many regards. The Chinese are early adopters of technology. They're innovative in its use. Uh, they are sort of moving up the value chain in manufacturing. China is conducting many experiments throughout the country in education, uh, both at a local and national level. They are revisiting old concepts. There are, and this is underreported in the United States, uh, continued and consequential experiments in local governance in China, uh, including efforts to make Chinese local government more responsive to constituent concerns and needs. Again, this is ongoing. It is underreported. Uh, in diplomacy, uh, in many regards, China has also shown uh, considerable creativity. Belt and Road is, is an imaginative concept. We can have a discussion or critique of how it was carried out, but it, it showed, I think, a 
uh, a real sort of vision uh, looking forward that if carried out properly, um, stood had a fairly high chance of success and of also uh, advancing China's uh, strategic interests. And Xi Jinping as, and the foreign minister Wang Yi, if you listen to their speeches on international affairs, they have a very dynamic worldview. Xi Jinping almost always begins by saying the world is changing, it's changing fast, it's changing in ways that offer opportunities for us and ways that offer threats. We must study these changes and change accordingly to maximize opportunity and minimize threats. This is, yes, it's boilerplate, but it's there. It's almost entirely absent from American political discourse, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, but it's a dynamic theory a th and a theory of change, yet that doesn't apply to that kind of imagination doesn't come up with regard to China's top strategic priority. We're still sort of stuck with one country, two systems. Let's look at a few Xinhua statements from the past few days about the elections. January these come from January 11th and 12th from, from Xinhua. And I think here we're, we're better off looking at Xinhua um, than at some other sources in China. Um, Doug Spellman and Terry Lotz and I were talking about this beforehand. Uh, you can always go to what Hu Xijin has said at the Global Times. This is an interesting point of reference, uh, but Hu Xijin is not an instant uh, public opinion poll in China, nor is the most nationalist extreme statement that you can find on WeChat. I think that Xinhua is probably still uh, a better guide, especially on, on this topic. So we see from Xinhua the following. As people of insight and the media on the island have said, this is obviously not a normal election. Tsai and the DPP used dirty tactics such as cheating, repression, and intimidation to get votes fully exposing their selfish, greedy, and evil nature. You neglected to mention <laughs> any of this. Uh, <laughs> Anti-China, this is still Xinhua, anti-China political forces in the West openly intervened in Taiwan's elections and supported Tsai in order to contain the Chinese mainland and to prevent the two sides of the Taiwan Strait from getting closer. This temporary countercurrent is just a bubble under the tide of the times Tsai and the DPP must be aware that they should not act willfully because of a fluke and that obstinately holding on to illusions will only accelerate their descent into disillusion. So when you, you read at, at greater length the Xinhua statements, the, the broad <coughs> claim is that this election was an aberration and a fluke. Um, now, what I think is very interesting about this is even if we disagree with China's assessment of the election, this line, if this holds as China's line towards Tsai's re-election, this is actually brings hope for stability in cross-strait relations in the short and medium term. Notice that this claim that China's re-election was an ab that Tsai's re-election was an aberration, this actually gives Beijing a justification before the Chinese people and the party for a policy of patience and inaction, for waiting them out. The claim that it's an aberration, a fluke, that it's greedy and evil and all of these things, while it may be insulting to Taiwan's democracy, actually is an assurance that there's not too much to worry about here, that the tide and the inevitability of reunification is ongoing. And I read this, at this point, it's still early days, as setting up a justification for a wait-and-see policy before the Chinese people. Just as we read, I think, properly into China's statements about Hong Kong that these people are terrorists, the beginnings of a justification for some kind of action in, in Hong Kong. I think we should read into this, even if we disagree, even if we think that it is willful ignorance, a justification for inaction. Wait-and-see. I see the CCP is preparing the Chinese people for four more years of waited out. This interpretation is not laying the groundwork for an invasion of Taiwan that some in Washington uh, seem to expect in the short term. And that's one of the reasons that I think that the cross-strait relationship of the next four years uh, will probably look a lot like the previous four years, albeit uh, with increased provocations, influence campaigns, uh, and cyber intrusions in order to look to the next election. And then just uh, very briefly, 
if that's true, uh, it suggests, and we can get into this in, in Q&A if you want, that the United States should also uh, stick with its established policies regarding cross-straits relations. It should continue to exercise caution under the United States interpretation of the One China concept. This is not a time for, uh, for adventurism uh, in the relationship. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Um, so the status quo will prevail in cross-strait relations. Um, Probably. <laughs> As of this reading. <laughs> Abe, what do you think? And how, what, what is the um, Washington's position? Yeah, I, uh, well first, it's a pleasure to join you all here. Happy New Year, happy new decade. Uh, thank you for coming to Wilson. Um, I just wanted to build off of the, the points of my colleagues. My remarks will be a bit shorter. Um, a couple points on everything that's been discussed, but focusing on what this means for the U.S. Um, but first, talking about Taiwan and what's going on in Taiwan. I thought Nadia's presentation was phenomenal. Just a few points to add on to it. Um, first, I think it's important to acknowledge and recognize that uh, even before we talk about Tsai Ing-wen, uh, this is an election itself is a victory for Taiwan citizens. Um, that the high turnout that came out, 75%, um, um, to me was sending a strong signal about the resilience of Taiwan's democracy. Um, and so to me, that's the, the, head, the real headline here. Um, second is that I see the election more as a victory for Tsai um, than a victory of the DPP. Uh, for the numbers that Nadia talked about before, um, the DPP and the KMT actually um, were fairly more even uh, in terms of LY election, in terms of at-large elections, in fact, uh, the DPP lost some seats in the LY and the KMT picked up a few. Uh, so to me, that shows that um, this is not a landslide for the DPP. This is not a wholehearted embrace of uh, green policies, um, but rather it shows that the, the complexities of Taiwan's politics uh, continue. Uh, the only point that I want to make that I haven't seen a lot about and that hasn't been discussed here, uh, but something to watch is the possible reducing influence of Taiwan business people living in the mainland. Mm. That as the economic relationship between Taiwan and the mainland diminishes, and t just a, a brief uh, statistic on that, in the first nine months of 2019, uh, uh, investments from Taiwan to the mainland were about $2.8 billion. This is less than half of what it was in the same period the year before, uh, which was $6.5 uh, $6 billion. Um, so we've seen a significant reduction in the amount of investment from Taiwan into the mainland. And I think that correlates to um, some of the, the business people living in the mainland, the so-called uh, Taishang, um, potentially not having as strong of an impact on Taiwan domestic politics as they had in the past. So that's something to watch. Um, for Beijing, I think um, when we're talking about the option to reach out, as we saw, as uh, uh, Robert mentioned, the the option to try to be more conciliatory, be more attractive. Uh, what I think this election has shown us is that it's going to take more than some tourists and some investment. That what China does outside of the cross-strait context, especially when it comes to Hong Kong, has a direct impact on the cross-strait relationship. So even if China does try to make itself seem more warm and cuddly, which I also agree is not terribly likely, um, it would take more than just the changing cross-strait policy. It would take a broader relook at things that impact the cross-strait. Um, and the last thing I mentioned, I, I'd recommend that people take a look at the uh, speeches made both by President Tsai and Mayor Han, um, both of whom in their speeches uh, talked about the need to uh, bring all parties together to strengthen Taiwan's democracy. I think both sides see that Taiwan's politics have, gr have grown more and more polarized, but also they, I think they expect intensified pressure from the mainland in the coming years, um, which will seek to um, um, Ex uh, exploit those differences to try to advance their own interests. Um, and so when um, Robert read the quote from, uh, from Xinhua, I forget the exact quote, but talking about how the DPP uh, influenced and, and uh, uh, conducted influence and they were unfair and they played dirty pool. Cheating repression and intimidation. Cheating repression and intimidation. Selfish I think from Beijing's evil. perspective, that's our job. That's not their job, that's our job. Uh, and well, I'll get that. Just, it, in a minute, but from the American perspective, um, I th I, there's four points that I would make from an American perspective. What does this mean? Um, the first point that I'd make 
is that the United States should be careful to not misread this election. That as I said before, this is not a wholehearted embrace of pro-independence of deep green politics, um, but rather it's a reflection of the, the complexities of this, of their politics. Um, this is not a DPP landslide. This is not an ideological victory uh, for the deep greens, but rather it's a continuation of the complexities that we've seen. Um, so Taiwan is not an ideological uh, ally in the campaign against so-called bad China, as Robert talked about. Um, but Taiwan's going to continue to play this, um, this complicated role. So that's the first point. Don't misread the election. Um, the second point, it's reflecting um, Robert's point as well. We need to continue our support for Taiwan, the unofficial relationship with Taiwan, but within the context of the one China policy. I think that's very important. That um, in our efforts to support Taiwan, in our efforts to help uh, Taiwan maintain its status, um, even though that support could be unofficial and that relationship could be unofficial, um, there is a danger of going too far, of putting China in a corner, uh, and I'll talk about this in a bit, um, but of putting China in a position where it feels that it needs to act more aggressively or assertively than it would otherwise because of what they see as the United States operating outside the bounds of the one China policy. This does not mean China gets a veto over our policy, but it does mean we need to keep in mind what our policy actually is and that there's a good reason for having that. Uh, the third point I'd want to make, and this is related to how the United States can engage with this, is the importance of substance over symbolism. Um, we, in the last few years, we've seen the United States take some very symbolic uh, measures to si signal their support to Taiwan that don't have real significant policy changes. For example, the, the uh, Taiwan Travel Act, um, in which it, the Congress restated American policies that senior officials can go to Taiwan. Didn't really change anything, but it was a symbolic statement uh, for Taiwan, which is, is helpful, is nice to do, of course, um, but it does intensify the competitive dynamics, it intensifies China's sense of being under pressure in terms of the cross-strait dynamic uh, without actually helping Taiwan much more than being symbolic. Um, and to me, if, we're, if the United States is going to try to help to Taiwan and try to support Taiwan, there's some very important and very substantive things that the United States could do that may not be as symbolic, may not be as flashy, but in the end I think would help Taiwan more and could be done in a way that would not antagonize the Chinese as significantly. For example, I expect that for President Tsai uh, in the coming four years, uh, the top priorities are not going to be understanding the complexities of the, of the cross-strait, but rather domestic economic policies. She's going to be under a lot of domestic economic pressure. And it just so happens that to my mind, one of the most important substantive things the United States could do would be to make advancements on enhancing the trade and investment relationship between the United States and Taiwan. Um, be that in some form of a free trade agreement or a um, trade investment agreement, but moving that process forward in a way that hasn't been done over the, over the long term would both have a symbolic, um, a symbolic message of uh, the United States engagement with Taiwan, but also substantively and in the real world actually help Taiwan's economy and the American economy as we link together. Uh, similarly on asymmetric defense capabilities, and this is something that uh, you may want to address later, but focusing on maybe less flashy, um, less easy to uh, turn into a big picture sort of asymmetric defense cooperation that would actually help Taiwan enhance its ability to defend itself from coercion and potential attack from the Chinese. Um, the last point I'd want to make from an American perspective, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned in terms of how China does um, political intervention. Uh, intervention uh, campaigns. Uh, in this, I would strongly recommend an article that was published in Foreign Affairs last week by uh, Rush Doshi, talking about how the Chinese um, do political interference and political influence campaigns. Taiwan is in many ways a, a leading uh, a beneficiary, a leading target <laughs> of um, Chinese intervention campaigns um, across the spectrum, economic, political, media, um, but this is starting to spread into countries like Australia, New Zealand, and potentially at some point into the United States as well, as well as across Southeast Asia. Um, so there's a lot that we could do to le learn lessons about how this worked in Taiwan. Uh, the people in Taiwan tend to be very savvy 
about understanding that if a headline's coming from this media, that that's probably a media that's being influenced by Beijing, but not all folks are like that around the world. And so democracies, especially in Asia, who are potentially subject to Chinese political interference efforts, could start to work with one another, talking to the Taiwan government especially, Taiwan people especially, uh, to, to learn those lessons and start to coordinate on policies and how to resist, how to take an account of effort, Chinese efforts to influence our democracies. Uh, so I, I think I'll stop there and open things up to questions. Great. Um, thank you, Abe. And just, just to add on um, U.S.-Taiwan um, economic relations moving forward, I know that um, about over 160 members of Congress um, in late December actually made a statement about talking about the need for the United States to, to enter trade negotiations with um, Taipei. So this is something that we could possibly um, look forward to in the future. Um, you've been terribly patient. Um, we have 15 minutes. Um, I'd like to open the floor for questions. We are audio recording this event, so if you could wait for a microphone to come to you. And I want to take as many questions as possible, so please, a, a question rather than a statement. Um, yes, sir. would be the asymmetric capabilities. What we're talking about right now is selling jets, working with them on submarines. Are you talking about cyber defenses? And this also applies diplomatically. Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about mines? I mean, I, this is what I'm trying to get at sure. here. Asymmetric is very broad when what we're really talking about doing and antagonizing China by doing it is selling fighter jets mm -hmm and working with them on submarines. I'm John Grady from the Naval Institute. Sure. So, um, generally speaking, when, when I say asymmetric capabilities, I mean emphasizing capabilities that take advantage of Taiwan's inherent advantages rather than trying to confront uh, the PLA strength for strength. Um, so in the PLA, you have the, the military that's the second best funded military in the world uh, after the United States, um, which, with that, which capabilities of size that Taiwan cannot hope to compete with. So the idea is to um, emphasize Taiwan's inherent strengths and try not to play to, to China's strategy. Um, what we've seen um, recently has been announcements of uh, arms sales to Taiwan um, for fighter jets, as you mentioned, but also Abrams tanks, $2 billion worth of Abrams tanks. Um, I have yet to have a conversation with anybody from Taiwan who can explain to me how an Abrams tank, how $2 billion of Abrams tanks helps defend Taiwan. Um, I'm still open to that conversation. I've yet to hear it. Um, and in terms of fighter jets and those things, I'm not one who says that Taiwan should not have fighter jets. I think it's perfectly plausible. But the question is, if with a limited budget, although the budget has increased significantly, um, what are the top priorities? And to me, there are asymmetric things that Taiwan could do that would make invasion and coercion much more difficult in terms of, you mentioned a few sea mines, in terms of uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, things that are not as um, photographable as a tank or as a jet, um, but would be very significant in terms of enhancing Taiwan's ability to defend itself. And that, to me, is the ultimate objective. Thank you. Uh, quick question. Um, your slide uh, shows that um, uh, the election results mean that the urge to defend sovereignty uh, values overpower the need to for bread and butter. Um, do you think there was uh, that the people of Taiwan see the correlation between sovereignty and statelessness? What do you mean stateless? Well, the people of Taiwan are stateless, and so do you think that um, uh, the, the way that they voted is an indication that they would like to end their statelessness, <laughs> or do you think that there's just um, uh, the desire to to maintain sovereignty for whatever they, however they view that? Um, I don't believe people in Taiwan think they're stateless, <laughs> even though they are not a member of a UN, you know. Um, 
I think most the younger generation believe that they, they are part of the international community and they have their own country, you know, military. And that's why I think they are more, uh, maybe from more afraid of uh, losing what they already have. Not just, you know, try to become a more active member to be recognized by more country. But I think uh, the younger generation was born, you know, in a free and open society. And they, they want to maintain that. And from what happened in uh, China and Hong Kong, I think they are seeing, you know, the way of life uh, they have now could be threatened. And that's why, you know, uh, it, they were driven out uh, to vote for something they believe or they want to defend. Um, for I just have a one more uh, one more things to add. When the Xinhua criticized, you know, the dark outside influence, I wouldn't say uh, that's true, but I did see more um, international attention <coughs> to this election. And one thing interesting, uh, um, I would propose you to you know maybe to ponder it is that. Before the election, uh, there was a, a news. Uh, the the self-claimed spy Wang Liqiang in Australia, and there was a story came out from Australia actually before the election and saying that uh, one uh, outspoken criticism of a DPP, uh, Cai Zhengyuan, and the Chinese businessman tried to contact uh, Mr. Wang and ask him to retract his statement. Uh, and claim that the DPP pay him to say what he said previously. But the, the, the story was released and published in the Australian media. You know, it almost diffused a bump be, uh, before the election, which could uh, maybe uh, significantly hurt uh, DPP's election. So uh, we, I don't know what happened inside uh, the story, but this is a very interesting uh, phenomenon yeah, that um, the story was first released by uh, Australian media, uh, with uh, some definitely you know inside insiders information. Yeah. Robert, um, quick question, Nadia. You may not know the answer to this. I haven't seen any reporting on it, but something else that was striking about this election was that we had a great increase in the number of overseas Taiwanese returning to oh Taiwan yeah. to vote including from the United States. Yes. Do we know anything about how their votes broke down? I, I asked because I'm assuming that Taiwanese Americans directly or indirectly are, are lobbyists or advocates for certain kinds of policies and, and do we know in general how those people voted? I don't think government has a, a statistics about uh, uh, overseas Chinese vote because <coughs> they first they have to go home and register. So they are, you know, the people already included in the register number based on uh, their location. And they're not, not you know, separately. So, uh, so no, there's no separate, we don't know how they voted. No, we don't. But bo both camp have a, a diehard supporter this time, especially uh, KMT supporter. I think for a long time they feel there's someone, you know, can represent them well or have a good chance to win this election. So I think in the past four years, especially you see President Tsai's reform actually uh, had uh, some negative or some people feel strongly, you know, uh, their interests have been hurt, uh, hurt or not well represented. So uh, they do have a strong urge to go back to vote. Um, yes, sir. My name is Michael Waller. I'm a member of the Wilson's International Cabinet. Um, looking past election to governance and with reference to uh, the remarks that uh, you made earlier about some the divisions inside of, of Taiwan that China might try to exploit, do you and foresee um, some outreach by the winning party here to the KMT to heal some of those divisions? What, what can they do um, that would ad advance the agenda of the country, broadly speaking, without compromising their posture relative to China? Could you comment on that a little bit? Well, um, I think for the, par the two parties uh, to reconcile with the, uh, each other, it will be difficult. They, they do have some um, basic differences, 
And for KMT, I think in the following years, um, survival <coughs> will become a very big challenge for them. Um, they can, you know, the younger generation are calling for uh, leadership change. The problem is, you know, who are going to lead and got enough su financial support. Financially, KMT is in a very difficult situation right now because their party assets has been, you know, frozen uh, by the law and they no longer, uh, the, the rich party that had a lot of resources uh, for their candidate. So whoever are going to lead the party really have to think hard and work very hard to get the financial support. And because I think the identity issue or the country, they, um, the supporter on both sides have a different, still have some differences about what the country should be. People, um, you know, uh, for, for some of the KMT supporter, they still feel they're loyal to the country uh, that established in 1912, uh, Republic China. And some of them still identify them like a Chinese, both Chinese and Taiwanese. But for the other camp, but I, I think I would say uh, that really united together, people together is, is very strongly, as Ab mentioned, the, the belief in democracy. I think that's something both camp can definitely uh, agree with. That's why you don't see KMT candidates that we, like Xinhua <laughs> statement, this is a dirty trick, you know, by the DPP. We will never accept it. No, you know, let's go on the street and overthrow this government. And you, you don't see that in Taiwan. I think it both sides feel strongly that this is, a, this is a system and the value they uh, both sides agree with and that they want to defend on it. That, that's, I think, they will actually work hard to to strengthen uh, the system and the institution that can keep the democracy going on. But on policy-wise and even some uh, national identity issue, I believe the debate will still go on because four years later, they are going to compete, you know. Let's try to take one more, one last question. Uh, the gentleman, the purple tie. Uh, right there with the glasses. Good morning, Eric Miller, Global Fellow, Canada Institute here at the Wilson Center. I'm interested in the forward path on Taiwan's trade agenda, particularly its uh, long quest to join CPTPP, and also if you can uh, use your crystal ball to look at how the U.S.-Taiwan FTA, which you're starting to hear more talk about, uh, will move forward in the 2020 uh, time frame here. Yeah, ju just on, on the CPTPP issue and the bilateral trade issue, as you know, the United States is not part of the CPTPP. Um, what happened with the WTO negotiations is that China and uh, Taiwan both succeeded, uh, ascended to the WTO simultaneously. And the expectation now is that China, Beijing's acceptance of Taiwan being able to join a multilateral framework like that would require both, both sides to join together. Obviously, China is not ready. Um, Taiwan is not exactly um, CPTPP ascendancy ready yet at this stage, but it is much, much closer um, than it is to Beijing. Japan has, is the biggest stakeholder in CPTPP at the moment. Japan is a very close um, ally of Taiwan, but at the same time, Japan's appetite to really encourage Taiwan to join independently at this stage um, is, is pretty low. That said, the provision in the CPTPP says that not just countries, but entities can also join as well. So the verbiage is there so that the wording is there so that there is the potential for Taiwan to join eventually, but the political will amongst the member countries is, is lacking at this stage. Um, if I could just chime in on the, the bilateral U.S.-Taiwan thing. Um, the Trump administration so far has been, has demonstrated a willingness to sign agreements that aren't necessarily 
as major and robust and high quality as one would expect. Um, for example, the um, trade agreement with Japan um, didn't include huge movement on issues like rice and autos, um, which is like saying the Redskins are a good team except for the offense and the defense. <laughs> um, but I do get the sense after in recent years that there is willingness to on the side of the Taiwanese on the Taiwan side to move on some of the long-sticking issues. Um, we, um, me, um, Robert, Shoko, and a few others visited Taiwan a, f a few months ago. Um, and I have a, a running uh, guess, just game with myself, and how long can I sit in a meeting in Taiwan before somebody mentions ractopamine, um, <laughs> which is a major trade issue um, in, in our relationship. Usually happens fairly quickly. Um, I get the sense that those sorts of issues, there may be some movement, um, but the real question is if on the U.S. side, um, the top leaders are willing to lean on USTR to actually get moving on issues that they haven't been willing to move on for a long time. And that just requires p political will from the American perspective to get the ball rolling. And that's to me, is the, the real question. Um, I know there are a few other people who would like to ask questions, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. So um, if you could join me in thanking our speakers and um, thank you all for joining us today. So thanks a lot. <laughs>